We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the, the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Can you say amen? And now we'll have Reverend David Moon come up and preach the title, How to Suffer Well During Pressing Times. Thank you, Pastor Daniel. Uh, we are continuing on a five-week sermon series on how, what things to learn uh, before COVID, the pandemic, is over. And so we talked about obeying in confusing times and then being united in divisive times. Third, we talked about thanksgiving in difficult times, and today, suffering in pressing times. So with that said, let's pray, and let's wait for the Word of God to reveal itself to us. Father, please help your servant today. For how can a preacher in his mid-30s comfort those who have experienced decades more of suffering than I have? Or how can I comfort people in Africa and missionaries in China and persecuted Christians in North Korea? Father, it is not I, but only you, Jesus, who jumped into the picture of human suffering. Only you can comfort and provide hope in the midst of a suffering nation and in the midst of a suffering church. So Lord, I ask that you would make your word known today. Please reveal yourself. And I pray that that would be for the benefit and the joy and the sanctification and the glory of your saints to the glory of God the Father forevermore. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the uh, pastors talked amongst each other, uh, we had three focal points, uh, substance-wise, in terms of what to talk about in 2021. And so a lot of our sermons and our teachings will, will now infuse three areas. One we thought was really important was mental health. We really wanted mental health to be something that we talk about often in our sermons and also our teachings. But number two, family worship. Uh, because we have seen a scenario where we can't gather, but worship cannot stop. And so we're really trying to focus on how to worship together as a family and as small groups. And then finally three, number three is apologetics. How to ensure that our young people come to know the gospel and are able to keep uh, the faith, uh, especially in their older years. And so 
Mental health, family worship, and apologetics is bleeding into all of our sermons. And so here's an apologetic part and an introduction to today's sermon. Uh, the philosopher um, Epicurus, uh, he presented a paradox. And this is how the paradox goes. There's a paradox about the problem of evil and suffering and God. And he calls it a trilemma. This is how he phrased it. Number one, three propositions. God is good. Number two, God is all-powerful. And number three, evil exists. And three out of these three propositions, only two can exist at the same time. That's how he argues it. And so, for example, if God is good but evil exists, then God isn't powerful enough. Do you get that? And then, number two, if God is all-powerful but evil exists, then God is not good. And finally, if God is good and all-powerful, then evil cannot exist, but it does. And so Epicurus, who is a hedonist, he focuses on the fact that God is unlikely to exist, or at least a good and perfect, all-powerful God cannot exist. That's his argument. And we call this the Epicurean trilemma. It's been a problem that we've been fighting against a long time. And in Epicurus' world, where God cannot be good or powerful, this is what he calls a tetapharmakos, uh, uh, four remedies for suffering people. Four remedies. And here's how he puts it. Number one, how do you suffer without God when there's no God? Number one, don't fear God. Number two, don't worry about death. Number three, understand that what is good is easy to get. And number four, what is terrible is easy to endure. This is the tetrapharmakos, four remedies that he proposes in a world without God but filled with suffering. What is the Christian response? The historical Christian response has been, if you can all repeat after me, um, suffering has a good purpose. Suffering has a good purpose. That's how all three exist together. God is good and God is all-powerful, and yet evil exists because it serves a purpose. And John Piper, let's look at the uh, screen that I prepared. Uh, picture number one. John Piper prepared five points that suffering does in our lives. What good purposes does suffering have? And I would call this a, a pentapharmakos. Five reasons, five remedies for the suffering Christian where you see suffering. Um, and so out of these five, today we're focusing on number four, the reward of suffering. And that is all, all what Paul talks about today. He's talking about the reward of suffering. And so there's a lot more reasons, but we really want to focus on uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18 today. And this is really, really important for us. Like, thank God that John Piper, at least, can find five reasons for suffering in our lives and the good that it does. Because 2020 has been a very extremely hard year. Uh, CDC reports that 40 U.S. adults, 40%, uh, struggles with substance abuse and also mental health issues. That's why we brought it up, mental health and substance abuse. And also, uh, a Barna study found that 50% of pastors struggle with depression right now as we speak. And it somehow sounds like lay people are doing better than pastors, right? <laughs> and, and, and suffering is not just a 2020 issue, though. Paul suffered so much, beaten, stoned, uh, uh, shipwrecked, abandoned, and imprisoned. Paul suffered so much that it left lasting repercussions. It had a permanent impact on who he was. So even though he wrote very powerfully, 
Paul wasn't a, a powerful speaker. Um, he was very meek. He was very soft-spoken. And also, Paul had something called a thorn in his flesh. And scholars probably say he had an eye issue where he probably couldn't open his eyes. And so there was a pressing issue uh, with his eyes as well. And so the Corinthians saw Paul suffering and they concluded, hey, this guy suffered so much that he can't be an apostle. And this is Paul defending his apostleship, that suffering has a good purpose. And I want to apply this to you right now. How many of you, given the suffering that you have experienced, have ever felt like you are not a child of God because of your suffering? There's a practical, emotional response to this. I mean, so many people in their college years run away from church not because of the logical issue of suffering, which we've just taken care of, but the emotional impact of it. They are hurt so much that they can't believe that they are children of a good and caring and all-powerful God. If that is you today, who experience with emotional and physical and mental suffering, today's word is for you. So out of the five purposes, we're going to talk about the reward of suffering and three things that Paul talks about out of the reward. Number one, suffering reveals Christ in us. Amen? Suffering reveals Christ in us. Number two, suffering extends grace and thanksgiving. Suffering extends grace and thanksgiving. And number three, suffering prepares you to enjoy God forever. So with that said, let's look at each point and really draw in what Paul is saying. Not just, you know, thinking about it, but drawing it in as nutrients for your heart to battle suffering every single day because it is real. So point number one, suffering reveals the life of Jesus in us. It reveals the life of Jesus in us. Verse 7 starts like this, but we have this treasure. But we have this treasure. And but is... Uh, showing us that grammatically it's changing around something that was talked about beforehand. It was qualifying it, right? And so verses 1 through 6 talks about the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's treasure in our lives. And Paul's saying, but, but, that treasure is, what? Kept in jars of clay or earthen vessels. So that's what he's trying to qualify. He's saying, you have treasure, but it's hidden inside your jars of clay, our bodies, our mental and physical and emotional bodies that we have. And it's under a very thin packaging. What is he trying to say? We are earthen vessels made from the dust. And we have this treasure, even though we have this treasure, though, it's contained within fragile bodies, our fragility. And so every day we suffer mental issues, emotional health issues, and physical health issues. Every day that is being worn away. And Paul's saying that's revealing something inside of you. So, Scripture is saying that what is contained inside is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit known through the gospel. That's what's inside of us. But, that's the important thing. That's what the, what the ironic thing is. So many of us design our lives to protect the outside, to protect our health, to protect my emotional stability, to protect my mental health. And all of our lives are rotating around avoiding suffering to pr protect the outer layer. But here's the thing. You've got to break an egg to make an omelet, right? Got to break an egg to make an omelet for the image of God to be shown to the world. The earthen vessels have to be broken open to show the treasure. Do you get that? 
And so our outer layer has to be stripped away for the inside to be shown. And here's the thing about suffering. Just really remember this. Suffering has two simultaneous effects upon you. Number one, it strips away the flesh and it strips away what is outside. It strips away the unorganic. It strips away the non-essentials. Do you get that? It takes it away. And then by stripping that away, it reveals the core, right? So stripping away and revealing two functions that we see in the life of Christians who suffer. But this isn't just for Christians. It also strips away and reveals uh, things in non-believers as well. For example, for religious people, religious people who aren't saved yet, who don't know the power of the gospel, what's, what suffering does is it strips away what is not organic to them. It strips away what is not essential to them. So you see coronavirus stripping away at our lives, and what's being stripped away for those people is they don't worship anymore. They've given up on worship, right? And they don't read the Word of God anymore, right? They don't have communion with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus. And so they've given up on things that are not organic. And so it's their outer layer. Their outer skin is being stripped away because it was never their core. And instead, what's being revealed? Like suddenly you have people clamoring for financial stability. You have to hold on to financial stability. People are holding on to their children's welfare. People are holding on to their health. And so it's revealing the core of what they actually desired. Do you get that? And so, you know, it's like people saying, you know, to, to this I hold, my hope is only, you know, Netflix, right? People hold on to things that they actually desired because of suffering. Suffering strips away that which does not belong to you and it reveals what's inside of you. But for people, Christians, who shelter under, under the cross of Jesus Christ, for those people, suffering strips away the shallower desires for stability, for financial stability, for your health and for your children and for your job. And more and more, it's revealing, I really do love Jesus. I really do love Jesus. I really do care for his church. I really do want to worship him every day, no matter what the circumstance is. And that's the question I want to ask you today. What is suffering stripping away from you? And what core is it revealing? It shows your identity. What has coronavirus taken from you? And what is it revealing in you? And I pray that this would strike you to your heart if you are still clamoring for the shallower desires of life. But suffering shows you. What a wonderful blessing it is. Suffering, so, suffering shows you your idols and it reveals what is truly important to you. So suffering doesn't destroy us. It cracks open the outer layer to show what is inside. Now, three of my uncles, uh, they worked in the jewelry industry. And so they made jewelry and they sold it. And so I often worked uh, in, their, in their shops, like just, you know, uh, during break times when I was very, very young. And I would go to their stores, and they would have beautiful rings and necklaces displayed under a very bright light. But whenever a person came in and asked for a ring to be shown, uh, this is what they would do. They would um, find a dark piece of velvet like this, right? And this is what they would do. They would take uh, the jewelry, right? They would take it and put it on top of the dark velvet. And the darkness is supposed to contrast with the jewelry to make it more appealing, and so they would sell it like this. And this is what's happening in, in today's text. 
The Corinthians thought that Paul was fake, but God is saying, here, in this dark velvet of suffering, let me show you who Paul is. He's a real deal. He suffered, and his Christ-likeness is coming out. Right? And that's how God presents suffering children to the world. The dark velvet is your suffering. And it's meant to focus in on what's inside of you, the value of the treasure inside of you. And so it's like God saying, hey, Satan, this is my servant Job. You see the suffering? I'm not pointing to that. I'm pointing to his God-centeredness. And the question that I have for you is that as you're being surrounded by this dark velvet, how is God presenting you? What's being shown as God presents you to the world? Verse 10 says this, we, are, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Amen. Suffering does that. And verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, stripped away, yet inner, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Amen. That's what suffering does. If you are in Christ, Jesus is being shown. Your flesh is dying away. What a wonderful way to be sanctified. Amen? Suffering has purpose. Number one, it reveals the life of Jesus in you. Number two, suffering extends grace and thanksgiving to other people. It extends grace and thanksgiving to other people. And I'm getting this for verses 12 through 15. So Paul also talks about not only does suffering have a, an internal effect where it's stripping away non-essentials and showing the essential, but it's also having a horizontal effect. Those who show themselves to be of Christ, they cause thanksgiving and grace in their communities. Do you get that? Verse 12 says, So then, death is at work at, in us, but life is at work in you. So me dying and you living has this correlation. Like just as Jesus died upon the cross so that I would have eternal life, the same thing happens for children of God who suffer. Death works in us, but for life to grow in other people. Now how does that work? Paul is saying that suffering is a catalyst that causes God's children to give grace to God, to cause people to have thanksgiving because they suffer so attractively. Okay? So if you suffer attractively, knowing that Christ is your core, that causes thanksgiving to the glory of God, according to verse 15. To the glory of God. And so somehow, weakness in the lives of Christians causes people to see God's grace and to praise him. So people who suffer well, you will see forming around them a small community of God-glorifiers, of thanksgivers. Whenever I'm interviewing a leader for a certain ministry, I look for two things. It is passion and suffering. And, you know, ironically or, or interestingly, um, passion in the Latin means suffering. So it's actually the same thing, right? Flipped over. But people, what I'm trying to say is, I'm looking for people who have suffered well. And even after suffering, if you have a passion to serve God and his church, that means you will be a blessing to many people. So people who have 
withstood suffering and processed it in a good way, where Jesus is revealing, being revealed more and more, they themselves are perfect evangelizers. They are the peacemakers. For example, people who have suffered violence, physical violence, when they are restored by the gospel, they are gentle. And they know people who suffer violence. They know how to minister to them, right? People who have suffered conflict, once restored by the gospel, they become peacemakers, right? And people who have been wounded, deeply wounded, become healers. And you have that book, Wounded Healer, right? I don't know if it's just enough to explain this to you. Um, I want to show this to you, okay? So here's a demonstration. This is my violin. I've had it from age eight, I think. It's an ancient thing. <laughs> it's going to play a little bit. this violin makes a sound uh, because the A string and the E string, it's the two strings I played off of, has extreme tension in it. It's about to pop. Uh, the, these strings are, uh, I think, an exception. I've had this since 2007. I haven't changed it since, and so it's a very long-lasting string. But what I'm trying to say is that suffering is tension in your life that causes you to sing. Now, I'm going to play on the G string. It has no tension in it. Listen to what it sounds like. No tension, uh, no beautiful sound. And the Talmud, the, the Jewish uh, uh, book of wisdom, uh, says that life is like a violin. Uh, you can't get a sound unless there's extreme tension through suffering. And here's the thing I want to ask you. Uh, what sound are you making? So many of you are professionals at avoiding suffering that you sound like the G-string that I just played. There's no sound from you that causes thanksgiving to spread amongst the world. But those of you who have suffered and who have overcome suffering sound like Christ. You make music like Christ. And the people around you form thanksgiving and grace in their hearts for the glory of God. One of the reasons why the health Wealth and prosperity gospel never works. It's because it attracts people who want to avoid suffering. And this gospel, this fake gospel, doesn't have the power to explain the suffering of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't have the tools, the systematic theology necessary to explain God's own suffering because he jumped into it, right? And so what happens to people in those circles is they can't sing to this world. No one's attracted by their message. No one is induced to believe what they follow because it just rings hollow. There's no tension in their lives caused by suffering. But listen to this. Reverend Son Yangwon, uh, a pastor, a Korean pastor, who lost two of his sons to one uh, practicing communist uh, by the name of An Jae-son. And practically every single Korean church has heard of this, but I'm just making sure that you've you hear this as well. Uh, Reverend Son, when he lost his two sons in martyrdom, he was killed by Anja Son. 
uh, he wrote 10 things to be thankful for. And I just want to read a few things to you. Listen to this. This is, this is music in God's ears. Listen to what he says. God, thank you for letting a sinner like me be father to two sons of martyrdom. Out of my three children, thank you for letting me offer my most precious first and second son. While dying of old age, while trusting in Jesus is precious in your eyes, how much more precious is it that my two sons were killed while evangelizing? Praise be to God. Six, my son was preparing to study in America. Thank you for taking him to an even better place, heaven. Thank you. Seventh, thank you for helping me forgive the enemy who killed my two sons and for giving me the heart to adopt him as his own son. And he actually carried this out. He adopted him later on as his own son. And eighth, thank you that the birth of many of your sons happened through the death of my two sons. This is the singing, the grace, the thanksgiving that happens when children of God suffer, the horizontal impact of grace and thanksgiving spreads. And Satan cannot stop that song. Later on, Anjasan, Anjasan, the killer of the two sons of murder, became a pastor. His son became a pastor. And grace continues to spread. And here's the thing. Why isn't thanksgiving and grace spreading in your life? Perhaps because you're too good at avoiding suffering. Jesus himself suffered. And because of the grace of the cross, we still have thanksgiving spreading. Because of the cross. That one instant in the center of history, spreading gospel ripples all across time and space, we still give thanksgiving to the glory of God because what? Jesus suffered. Verse 15, all this suffering, all this suffering is for your benefit. So Paul's suffering is for their benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Amen? Your suffering somehow produces thanksgiving in other people if you suffer well. So, brothers and sisters, suffering has purpose. With all the tension in your life that pulls your strings tight, don't lose heart because God will sing through you. And this is not just poetic language. You know when you see your student leader break down because of a difficulty in his life, and that causes so much thanksgiving and praise and vulnerability in your small groups. Our church is so good at concealing weakness we're so accustomed to not showing vulnerability and only showing the best of us. Like Instagram and Facebook, we want to show the best of our lives. Here is how mature I am as a Christian. And yet when weakness comes out and suffering comes out, there's thanksgiving. I want you to practice this in your families. Practice this in your students. Don't just talk about your victories. Talk about the failures and the suffering that causes you to sing. And God will be glorified, not you. That's the purpose. If you present your best side, you will be glorified. But if you present your suffering, God will be glorified. Amen? Finally, third, God, through suffering, prepares us for eternal glory, which is to enjoy God. To enjoy God. Let's go to the second picture I prepared. 
Uh, it's a diagram of verse 17. I just recently knew how to make this, and so uh, <laughs> coronavirus is helping me with a little bit of technology. Um, but that's kind of the structure of what Paul is comparing. He says, a light and momentary affliction, and he's comparing that with an eternal weight of glory. And he's say, saying, that stuff on the top is achieving or preparing you for eternal weight of glory. And glory in the Hebrew is kavod, which, is, which means a weightiness, heaviness. And so there's a contrast between our suffering and the eternal glory waiting for us. And so we get this conceptually pretty clear. Light is opposite with heavy weight, right? And then uh, momentary is opposite with eternal. And we get those. But when you come to see affliction as opposite with glory, people start to think and they're like, we come to understand, we don't really know what glory is. Like, like how many of you are happy because suffering is producing eternal glory? It's hard to be happy because you might not know what glory is in the first place. And so instead of us trying to define what glory is, let's look at what God says about his glory. That's what defines glory. Uh, when Moses asks, God, can you show me your glory? Because Moses wants to see God's glory. God says in Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And this is the Bible, God's own definition of his glory. It's not his power. It's not his all-knowingness. It's his perfect character, his perfections, his moral perfections. And so, when we're told that suffering is preparing us for eternal glory, the foundation of that concept is God's perfection. We are going to reach God's perfection in his presence. In other words, you will enjoy God to the fullest. And here's the thing that's really sad. When we're told that suffering achieves eternal glory, it doesn't mean too much. It's like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. That's great. But it's proving that we haven't formed the taste buds to actually appreciate what glory is. We're not excited about it. It's like me talking to my four-year-old daughter. Hey, dad's going to give you the best sushi in the world. And she's like, ew, right? Because it's an acquired taste. Glory is not something that you find in a fallen world. Moral perfection comes from God, and humans as rebels do not understand how beautiful and perfect God is. Therefore, when we say suffering produces eternal glory or makes you appreciate it, we're like, okay, so what? It's a taste bud shift, a desire shift. It makes you want the right things. And you know what? Here's the thing. If you don't love God right now, if you don't enjoy him so much right now, well, let me tell you something really sad. Heaven will not be, uh, heaven's going to be boring, very boring. Because what defines heaven is less the geographical terrain, but it's more about who's in it. God occupies heaven, and he, with his perfect moral character, rules over heaven. That's why it's, it's heaven, because God is there. And if you don't have the taste buds to appreciate God right now, when you wake up in QT, and you're like, why do I have to QT? Like, why do I have to enjoy God when there's so many things waiting for me? Well, heaven's going to be very boring for you. And to keep heaven from being boring, suffering, thank God 
helps us appreciate what we should appreciate, which is God himself. It helps you appreciate God himself and enjoy it. In other words, suffering is designed to transform your desires from the flesh to the spirit and prepares you to enjoy God. And this sounds so theoretical right now that I once again want to just tell you a story about what this looks like on the floor. What does this actually look like? On March 27th, uh, 2014, my wife and I were in Virginia right before going to Boston to uh, go to seminary. And my wife was 14 weeks pregnant and uh, there was a lot of bleeding that was happening. And so uh, we took her to Inova, uh, no insurance at all. And so uh, it took a long time for us to get in the hospital. And while we were being rolled to the emergency room, uh, my wife miscarried at 14 weeks. We thought it was all safe. Uh, but she miscarried at 14 weeks. And she felt that something had just come out of her. And she didn't even look. We just started crying together. Uh, it was the middle of a hallway, 3 a.m., uh, so cold, and uh, there was no one around us. So it's just me and my wife holding hands and praying together because this was the first, first time I had tasted sharp and acute suffering, uh, not prolonged suffering because uh, I think I've had some of that, but this is sharp and acute suffering, and I knew that I was supposed to glorify God some way, and I didn't know what to do, so I just prayed with my wife, you know, somehow through this can you be glorified. And the doctors, uh, they usually tell you, don't look at the fetus if there's a miscarriage. Uh, but being the stupid person I am, I looked. And I looked and I looked. Um, and the fetus, uh, 14 weeks old, it was the size of a, a small lemon. And in the midst of, of that pain, uh, it was so beautiful. Uh, I mean, the fingers were perfectly formed. Uh, it was a good-looking kid, <laughs> I think, at 14 weeks. And as we were looking at that, something magical, something miraculous happened, which is I finally tasted, just tasted, what God felt about his son who died for us. But so much more glorious, right? I mean, this baby was 14 weeks old, but Jesus was as old as eternity, right? This child died because of genetic and natural causes, but Jesus came here to die because of our sin and because of our rebellion and because of our actual persecution to kill him. This kid probably knew sin from birth, this child. But Jesus was perfect and spotless and blameless and pure. And as, as I was comparing my 14-week-old baby to Jesus, my desires shifted. Like, I didn't care about finances anymore at that day. <laughs> I didn't care about what I was going to study in seminary. I didn't care about, you know, some of the other pleasures that I expected out of life. Like, I was like, screw it all. <laughs> I just want God now. I want the Father who's so good that he would give his son over to me and experience a thousandfold more pain than I did voluntarily for a sinner like me. And that was the gospel. That Jesus came and jumped into suffering for a person like me. I want to be where God is. If God the Father is that good, I want to be where he is and my tastes and my desires were, were transforming and being sharpened do not desire the things of the world, but 
where God is, where Jesus is, and where I hope to meet my son one day, right? And it transforms everything about the nature of your desires. So it says, this light and momentary affliction prepares you, achieves for you a weight of eternal glory. And once you taste suffering, you know, Netflix, YouTube, uh, Facebook, uh, shallow relationships, uh, opportunities to progress in your workplace, it doesn't mean anything. And where your God is, where God loves you so much, where your perfect Father is, that's where you want to be. So suffering has a purpose. It makes you, achieves for you, a weight of eternal glory. Uh, Priest, can you come up, Pastor John? And I just want to encourage you with verse 18, which is the last verse of today. So, because suffering has all these purposes, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but we focus, we fix our eyes on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and light, but what is unseen is eternal. Suffering tells you this. Can you just repeat after me to engrave this idea in your mind? Repeat after me. The best is yet to come. That's what suffering tells you. The best is yet to come. Are you hungry for that? This is something you got to learn before corona finishes. You got to understand that no matter what pleasures you have in this world, it's temporary and light. But what's waiting for you is heavy, eternal, and true food for your soul. The best is yet to come. In your suffering, the life of Jesus will be revealed. In your suffering, you will sing. God will sing through you to bless many people. And in your suffering, you will form a desire for heaven that no thing in this world can cultivate in you. And because of at least these three reasons, our suffering is good. Let's respond in worship.